If you go down, down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. When a competent observer looks for signs of despotism in a community, he looks beyond fine words and noble phrases. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. Go into the automobile business and compete with the auto truck. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain store? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. Because it's just a big money-making machine. They're wandering through a maze of inauthentic, fake landscapes, and they can't escape. The message in all this is that the capitalist system in America is unfair and is, in fact, a failure at providing for basic human needs or maintaining continued national growth. I, I can't wait for like the episode of like who wants to be a millionaire where all the contestants like team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. Bottom-up horizontal connection is sharing at all levels, not top-down control. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Because as communities go, so goes the nation. Welcome to the Three Left Show. Uh, I don't think I played in the bumper, so I want to state clearly that this is my own opinion. This does not represent WCAA and Grand Street Community Arts. This is a separate program as far as responsibility for one's words. I am Daniel Platt. This is the Three Left Show, your leftist reading hour, expanding on direct democracy and a commons economy, the intersection of socialism, anarchism, and ecology for a left that is of itself and for itself. I have a show today about alternative currencies, but first I think the great premise is to do a little in-the-moment news coverage of this week's events, particularly Wednesdays. Of course, I'm talking about capital protest. Now, of course, I have a viewpoint. There are a lot of bad takes out there, even from other socialists. Uh, I was like, How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be my riot buddy. But, of course, the left protests a lot better than that. You know, we'd have medics on scene. We'd have uh, soup cans. We'd have a soup kitchen set up. We'd have uh, a squad of gays uh, and queers handing out candy. You know, we know how to do this right. Uh, it wouldn't have been the, the, sh the crap show that you saw on Wednesday. Um, now, I'm of the mindset that, you know, the, there's a quote, I think, like, the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce as far as uh, fascism and rising fascism is concerned. You know, Trump is not Hitler. This is not some kind of organized movement. You do have little paramilitaries, boogaloo boys, proud boys. You know, there are a few hundred strong. When they all show up, they're quite formidable and frightening, but they all do, in fact, have to show up all at once in one place in the country. They're not exactly a powerhouse in local communities. They're similar to the left and the far extreme left in that way. And in fact, both will be targets of whatever expansion, and there will be, it's already announced, an expansion of police powers in, in fighting domestic terrorism. Now, of course, that goes for right-wingers kidnapping governors. It goes for bombing AT&T buildings. Uh, but it also probably will be, no, it is, in fact, applied to water protectors, pipeline blockades, corporate malfeasance protesting uh, and all manner of uh, guerrilla gardening and do-it-yourself back-to-the-land type projects and hippy-dippy stuff. All are targets under domestic terrorism. 
as the last 20 years was all about um, expanding the police powers of our surveillance state and, you know, externally to fight the terrorists out there in the world. Well, now that's kind of not a passe. Now it's about fighting terrorism here at home. And the government, meaning the whole entire government, has all the tools it needs for a terrorist state with a, with a velvet glove on. As far as it doesn't affect that many people, only those who are actually resisting and and so on uh, in, in their own ways. So first, uh, I'm going to read a piece from Three Way Fight, an insurgent blog on the struggle against state and fascism. Now, for many maybe listening, those are the only two sides, state and fascism, or the state that is now headed by Democrats, and so it represents us and the, or my team. You are wrong. There are multiple sides, and I'm particularly of a different side, the left. And the left is, in fact, fighting both state and fascism. It's a three-way fight. And you need to choose what side you're on. Because as far as I'm concerned, the state is neoliberal hell world. It's dystopian, global, you know, capitalist supremacy. They are, as they have in the last year, and of course, you know, entire era, consolidating power, consolidating wealth, and now consolidating police powers, whether it's governors like a, a, a Como. Um, many have been afraid that Trump has been doing this. He has not. It is a joke to me when you talk of Trump seizing power or a coup. No, the military announced months ago that they were not going to do anything to keep him as president, regardless of the outcome of the election. It was always just these few groups, Boogaloo Boys and whatever, and they all showed up at once at D.C. That was all of it. Okay, that was all of it. And now, even though half the Republican Party is supportive of them, the other half not so sympathetic anymore. Number one, and this is broken up in the points. It's called Broken Windows Fascism. One, when Donald Trump was first running for president in 1516, a lot of alt-rightists supported him, not because they thought he could win, but because they hoped he could help destroy the Republican Party. He hasn't quite done that, but he has created a serious crisis within the party, which is now deeply divided between those who accept and those who reject the legitimacy of the existing electoral system. This is where there's some cross-reach for myself and other leftists in that we also don't think the electoral system is legitimate. This is why when, when they march, uh, storm out and say, we're going to start our own party, a people's party, and that's exactly what all those but hurt uh, progressives from the Bernie camp who don't want to be Greens or Socialists or, or, or actually represent a, uh, be part of a cohesive left. They, they want to reach across. They want to have broad appeal. They also say, we want to start a people's party. Well, guess what? Oh, that's what all these fanatical Trumpers are also saying. You should join them. Yeah. Uh, a broken GOP might sound like a cause for celebration, but it's likely to benefit the far right most of all. Today's physical assault on the houses of Congress was the militant edge of a much larger movement. And while it will alienate or frighten some sympathizers, it will galvanize and embolden others. Point two. In broader terms, Trump's insistent denial of the November election results has spurred a massive political shift within the U.S. right. Update on that. Yesterday he did, in fact put out a video where he concedes, but of course, most of the QAnoners and alt-rightists are calling this a deep fake. Isn't it wonderful when we have technology to create fake videos and Photoshop, well, not just Photoshop for fun, but also actually change and re alter reality or the way people perceive reality through video and 
pictures and audio. All of these things can be manipulated, and thus nothing, no media can actually be trusted if you do not take it for granted. Because, of course, if it's something you don't like, it isn't real. If it is something you like, that is authentic and real. Um, truly making your own reality as you go. Or rather, the ultimate in cognitive bias. I, my reality is this. Everything that conforms with it is good or true. Okay, as millions of people have moved, at least temporarily, from system loyalty into system opposition, as symbolized by Proud Boys stomping on a thin blue line flag, we should expect this oppositional right to remain active and violent long after the current fight over the presidency has died down. As Natasha Leonard argued yesterday, and as Robert Evans documents, the oppositional right is a meeting place where different rightist currents and ideologies, such as neo-Nazism and QAnon, converge and interact. It remains to be seen how unified or well-organized the oppositional right will be, what kind of strategies and tactics they will use, and whether or not Trump himself will continue to play an active role. I want to point out that, you know, progressives, Bernie, Kratz, uh, you'd think they would cohese into an oppositional left, but... Uh, if the last few weeks have shown with the force the vote fiasco posting campaign, there is no uh, uniting of that. That is like they, they were that arc that force the vote thing on on all the social media with Jimmy Dore. There was really to me just a big argument between are we going to be oppositional or not? With Democrats holding their slim majority, you had. Most of that movement saying we're not going to be oppositional because we're all about being oppositional to Republicans, not Democrats slash the oligarchy. And so there's a perspective here that I hold that this is the oligarchy and it's both parties and you kind of need to be oppositional to both. Even if you're electing people of Congress, they are there to be oppositional. But when they're not and they're, you know, it's just, it's just boom, Bernie crap movement is now Non-op, they're not the oppositional left. They are simply the oppositional mainstream, right? Oppositional to the other half of the oligarchy. Puppet show. It's, it's just, it's just aesthetics. And I'm going to do an episode on all aesthetics because I'm really trying to find a good balanced position on aesthetics. I think it's, they're important, but they're also, it's kind of the extreme of a lot of people's politics is just aesthetics, like wearing certain clothes, having certain phrases, having certain positions even, but there's no content there. And this show is all about exploring content, not so much aesthetics. Sometimes the yes, mm -hmm. as I do with architecture, and I will do again. Uh, point four, a question for the coming months and years is, to what extent will the state repressive apparatus be used to crack down on the oppositional right? Certainly cops are likely to go after MAGA activists and Proud Boys the way they go after Black Lives Matter and Antifa, but there's a long history of federal security forces targeting far-rightists, especially through covert ops. Joe Biden likes to talk about unity, but it's not hard to imagine his administration reviving and expanding FBI and Homeland Security capabilities for tracking white supremacists and other far-rightists. It's also not hard to imagine some conventional conservatives actively supporting this effort. Let's remember that the federal government's most serious and systemic effort to crack down on oppositional rightists in the past 40 years, from the Order to the Lyndon LaRouche network, took place under Reagan. And let's remember, too, that in the hands of the capitalist state, anti-fascism can be a powerful rationale for building the repressive apparatus, which ends up getting used mainly against oppressed and exploited groups.
Thus, it's a lose for the left all over again. Even when, or double over, even when the cops and the clan don't go hand in hand, neither one is our friend. Point five. Instead of looking to the state to bring things under control, there's an urgent need to, for a broad-based militant action on two fronts, to combat both the openly supremacist forces of the oppositional right and the less blatant but still deadly systems of established privilege and power. The past four years have been nightmarish in a lot of ways, and they've also been a time for dynamic, liberatory activism on a large scale. There are a lot of powerful examples of militant creative organizing we can look to for lessons and inspiration. And that's for that in the Wikipedia Commons from the three-way fight. So I want to repeat my, my main thesis for this episode, or at least it's a thesis of my commentary here. So I want to make a, a broader point about there's a need for content, right? These uh, The rightists that took the Capitol for a brief time, they're uh, half of which were ushered in by the police and then escorted out by the police. That's only 13 arrests were made. Then um, the you know casualty count. Um, one was shot by Capitol Police. She was a Air Force pilot who uh, flew missions in Iraq. I'm going to be a little edge lord and say that the Iraqi children she likely killed would. Uh, I will speak on their behalf and say good riddance. The others that were killed uh, were all kind of dumb ways to die. Thus, they. I mean, they're starting to get a little press coverage, and of course, we know there will know their names in ways that um, trans black women killed uh, randomly out there in the world and with legal defenses uh, to back them up, back up the, the murderers, panic defenses I'm referring to. Um, we don't know their names. They're not national stories. But uh, but the, the woman with the Galston flag, that's the don't tread on me flag, who is trampled, super poetic. Then there's the man with high blood pressure who was attempting to steal a Tip O'Neill painting. He had a taser in his pants. It went off and he tased himself to death. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I was, I was like, yeah, there's a reason why they're just saying four deaths. One was uh, shot in the neck. I'm like, what happened to the other three? Um, oh, that's why they're not talking about them. But there's a, what I'm, my point is, they had no plan, you know, it was just kind of a uh, pageantry and a show, a circus, if you will. Uh, they, they weren't going to occupy, and they didn't have any serious demand except overturn the election, uh, which is just nonsensical. It's not even a policy. It's not even a real action that anyone can uh, legitimately take, no matter uh, what, well, who you're talking about. And, and many people were, uh, the joke that Chapo Trap House made that anyone Trump was talking to or t- attempting the plan with was basically pretending to do things but not doing anything. Because they all just kind of just, they're, they're like, you know, the, the person that's just really annoying and you just want them to go away. So you act like you're doing what they want. Uh, so they'll be satisfied and leave you the hell alone. So too, most of the country is acting this way. Um, but there was a lack of content and a lack of platform. You know, what were they really for? A return to a fantasy. A return to them being in charge. What does that even entail? You know, sometimes they're called the Yalkaida because it's really just about enforcing conservative values or hyper-conservative values, whatever you want to phrase it. Meanwhile, liberals are not so much better platform is not Medicaid for all. It is not 
well, there's some conversations of, you know, Buttigieg will be a great transportation secretary because he's from a small town, even though he didn't fill potholes or expand public transportation there. Uh, so what the hell? It's all just bullcrap. So my, my general, yeah, my general point once again is there needs to be content, right? To be an oppositional left that I am part of and I want to organize it as soon as we all get vaccinated. Yes, I'm not anti-vaccine. Shut up. I'm really tired of seeing this come up where it's just like, look, there's, there's the authoritarian state, but there's also actual medicine and the ways we actually curb disease. And these things, though, inter- intersect in various ways, like the fact that, you know, there, there are vaccines made abroad that are probably easier to distribute. Uh, they don't have to be frozen like, uh, Merrick's, uh, and then, or they don't have to be even refrigerated like, um, the other company in America. You know, we have to use American made vaccines and that's basically to our detriment because, well, it's based, it is basically corrupt. But just because there's an intersection doesn't mean one is, they're not completely inclusive to each other. Uh, that is not, that is the way I see it. So I'm looking to, <laughs> so yeah, content. Thus, the rest of the show, I would devote to uh, a planned um, topic, alternative currencies, right? Communists, commies talk of moneyless economies, or we talk of a planned economy where money and market economics is less necessary. There could still be markets, especially the secondhand types. Uh, but as far as production and consumption is concerned, like, what is this? It's always kind of an open question of what this really looks like. Well, I would say, of course, there are, in fact, many examples, experiments of what hasn't worked and what is currently working today. So let's go to a Wikipedia page, but it's Bitcoin Wiki. Many different wikis, of course. And this is just for, I just typed in for a general wiki article on the labor voucher. Let's go back to the past. Back to uh, the uh, beginning of the Industrial Age. Uh, Napoleon is defeated. The French Revolution has been curbed uh, in Europe. Um, and now there are budding labor movements and reactions to industrialization. That must be my co-host. He is currently debating someone on his Twitch stream. That's where he is right now. And the goal is... Oh, he says his mic is messed up. So we'll see. We'll get back to him. The plan was that he joined me at the beginning of the um, second hour. So back to labor vouchers. What is a labor voucher? Well, it's just a general idea. Let's go into it. A device proposed to govern demand for goods in some models of socialism, unlike money, does under capitalism. And by socialism, I mean early socialism, like pre-Marx. Here's an outline. Unlike money, vouchers can circulate and are not transferable between people. They are also not exchangeable for any means of production, like factories and equipment. Hence, they are not transmutable into capital. Why is this important? Get to that. Once a purchase is made, the labor voucher is either destroyed or must be re-earned through labor. Therefore, with such a system in place, monetary theft would become impossible. Such a system is proposed by many as a replacement for traditional money, while retaining a system of remuneration, meaning you earn for work done. It is also a way of ensuring that there is no way to make money out of money, as a capitalist market economy allows. Thus, you know, kind of, um, the more money you have, the more money you make, the more 
You basically exponentially grow your assets until you're a monopolist. And so if we really want to prevent monopoly, well, there's antitrust laws, but we've seen how long, how well they work long term. Thus, more radical proposals like changing how money works. Author and activist Michael Alpert, I will turn to, and economist Robin Handel have proposed a similar system of remuneration in their economic system they call participatory economics. A difference is that Impericon credits are generally awarded based on both time spent working and the amount of effort and sacrifice spent during labor, rather than simple contribution. Some, because that can be kind of unfair, some people can contribute more based on their genetics or other types of luck-based properties. More on that later in the show. Some later advocates of participatism or paracom have also proposed awarding more based on job difficulty or danger. Also, in contrast to the physical note or check format used, they propose something more digital. Here's a history of the labor voucher or alternative currency type schemes. Labor vouchers were first proposed in the 1820s by a Josen Warren and Robert Owen. Two early attempts at implementing labor vouchers, also called labor notes at the time, were made by both following their experience attempting to establish a utopian community, New Harmony, Indiana, in which currency was prohibited. So they attempted to make a communist a commune from with no money from scratch. It did not work out well, as many of Owen's uh, new commune schemes. Um, they got a lot of attention. He was a pretty rich guy, so he could promote them really well. Um, but they did not last more than five, ten years. Various reasons. Right wingers would say it's because socialism will never work. It's always dumb. It's counter human nature. Well, there can be economic reasons for this as well as, well, it didn't work in this way, let's try something else. And thus, new experiments followed. In 1827, Johannes Warren established the Cincinnati Time Store where goods could be purchased with labor vouchers, representing an agreement to perform labor. He folded the store three years later in order to devote his effort to establishing communities that implemented his principles of labor-based prices. Beginning to 1832, Robert Owen and his followers attempted to implement labor notes in London and Glasgow by establishing marketplaces and banks that accepted them. The followers of Robert Owen stood for a society of cooperative communities, they were the proto-socialists. Each community would own its own means of production, and each member of a community would work to produce what had been agreed was needed in return and would be issued with a labor voucher certifying how many hours they had worked. A person could then use this to obtain from the community stock. Owen believed that this cooperative commonwealth could begin to be introduced under capitalism, and in the first half of the 1830s, some of his followers established labor bazaars on a similar principle. Workers brought their products of their labor to the bazaar and received in exchange to labor voucher, which entitled them to take from the bazaar any item or items which had taken the same time to produce. After taking into account the cost of raw materials, these bazaars were ultimately failures. The idea of labor vouchers appeared in substantially similar forms in France in the writings of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, first anarchist writer, uh, or at least coined the term, actually. Now, why do these fail? I can tell you one reason. Uh, currency as a technology is, in fact, very useful and has many advantages over barter systems, which was basically what this described. Although he disagreed with the manner in which they were implemented by Owen, 
They were also advocated by the big man Karl Marx. In 1875, as a way of dealing with any immediate and temporary shortages upon any establishment of socialism. Marx explained that this would be necessary since socialism emerges from capitalism and would be stamped with all of its birthmarks. In Marx's proposal, early socialist society would reward citizens according to the amount of labor they contribute to society. Now, there are some problems in this because some people can work more than others or they could work the same amount but produce more. Marx was adamant in saying that labor vouchers were not a form of money, as they cannot circulate, problem he pointed out with Owen's system of labor time notes. During the Great Depression, European communities implemented local currencies with varying success. The Avalonian's economist, Sir Leo Chesi Money, advocated, or de Manet, advocated for a similar monetary scheme in his 1934 book, Product Money with notes or certificates being issued for productive work and destroyed once exchanged for consumption. More modern implementations as time-based currencies were implemented in the U.S. starting in the 70s. We'll return to that also later. Inclusive democracy is unique in proposing two kinds of vouchers. A basic voucher issued to each citizen according to need, and they're used for essential goods and services like health care. And there's also a non-basic voucher awarded to each worker for labor contributed as used to pay for the non-essential, the luxuries. Here are some criticisms, though. Capitalists, whether they're statists, minarchists, or anarchos, uh, generally oppose labor vouchers as they are not money and thus claim an economy using them could not set prices according to marginal utility. So sometimes the kind of currency you have is based on what kind of economic principle you're using to set prices or judge value of things, right? A lot of labor vouchers are using the, the labor theory of value, as discussed in previous episodes, and in favor of any baby leftist or uh, leftist in training, you'll learn, and it's, it's basically like reading the classics first, you learn about labor theory of value, that the value of most products comes from the labor put into it, the work, Right, And thus the work is where the person who's working should be compensated either the most or enough uh, and not the person who's contributing the capital or the means of making it. Both are important. And marginal utility or like subjective value, right? Marginal utility is, you know, you need this more now so it's more valuable. The principle behind scalping and upcharging and uh, and all kinds of other unfair malfeasic things because it's obviously just because the value of something goes up doesn't mean everybody's income goes up. In fact, it might be when their income goes down. And that, that's no sense of balance whatsoever. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, so doesn't doesn't include marginal utility and would theoretically have to rely on a labor theory of value, which adherents of the subjective theory of value generally see as inflexible and restricting economic freedom of choice for the consumer. This is your standard apologetic. Some proposed system which advocate labor vouchers, namely participationism, reject the labor theory of value, or at least go beyond it to include other types of value systems, right? Social value. The system has been criticized by many libertarian socialists, particularly communists, who propose abolishing all remuneration and prices and advocate instead a gift economy with value determined by calculation in kind. In kind meaning uh, on the fly or by intuition, personal intuition. 
right? Thus, it's actually very individualistic. Uh, in criticizing anarcho-collectivism is retaining of labor vouchers and checks. Kopkin, famous anarchist, wrote, For after having proclaimed the abolition of private property and the possession in common of all means of production, how can they uphold the wage system in any form? It is, nonetheless, what collectivists are doing when they recommend labor checks. The group, uh, so, sometimes right on this program, the World Socialist Movement has argued against using labor vouchers as either a permanent or a temporary system while transitioning to their desired anarcho-communist economy based on free access. This is sometimes called a resource-based economy, if that rings a bell. They claim that seeing as most of the occupations that currently exist under capitalism, a lot of the bullcrap jobs, will no longer exist, scarcity also would no longer be an issue. They also state that, quoting, labor vouchers would tend to maintain the idea that our human worth is determined by how much or how many goods we can own. Very hippy-dippy, right? Labor vouchers imply that someone must police who takes the goods produced by society. In other words, there must be some people who spend their time ensuring that other people do not take things without paying for them. That is normal in a profit-oriented society, but a waste, a waste of human labor in socialism, as they put it. So now, um, this is literally just the intro, because I basically laid out all the different types of alternative currencies that socialists, uh, lefties propose and experiment with. Because now I'm going to go through each of those experiments, starting with the gift economy of pure communism. Like we're going to abolish classes and current money and and whatnot, uh, and corporations, all at once, uh, usually in a commune-type sense. And here is such a place, also started in the 60s, 70s, Aeroville. Uh, this is from a blog called Returns Now. It's one of those more, one of the more kind of, uh, I feel, surface-level kind of blogs, where it's just like, look at all the cool hippie stuff out there. And it has that tone of, like, look how great this is. It mentions at the end that there are some problems, and then I will explore them uh, with true journalism. World's first moneyless city thrives on a gift economy. Aeroville, also known as the City of the Dawn, is an international city in South India, founded in 68. Currently, it has 2,800 official residents from 54 countries, with a capacity to grow to 50,000, as far as land is concerned. Aeroville is a collective experiment in human unity, quoting them, based on the worldview of an Indian yogi, Siri Aerobindo. The idea is if people from all cultures and castes can learn to love each other in Aeroville, maybe the rest of the world can follow. The township has created with support from the Indian government, UNESCO, and well-wishers around the world, but is becoming more and more self-sufficient. Is it, though? Although the government of India owns and manages the Aeroville Foundation, it finances only a small chunk of its budget. Aeroville's central fund is mainly supplied by Aeroville's commercial units, followed by private donations. Aeroville made products for sale. Uh, they sell all kinds of little things, mostly, though, um, well, some basics and some luxuries. There are a wide variety of careers available for Aeroville citizens, afforestation, organic agriculture, um, education and other hippie stuff as well, but town planning, village development. But an Aeroville work is not done for pay, and there is no individual ownership of land, housing, or business. Everyone is given a basic living maintenance, whether they work for one of the commercial units 
or doing community service, or if they are unable. When they go to the store, they take what they need, tell the clerk their account number, and it's deducted from the central fund. It's an economy designed to serve humanity rather than the other way around, residents say. We give our work, and we are given what we need, says citizen John Eves Lung. In a documentary below, it's very simple. If you give your work and you're happy to give it, and you don't need money to evaluate the quality of your giving. We can still be productive, creative, innovative, and what happens is people discover that you feel better. And we take what we need, and that's it. A uh, number of more quotes from things. They cover their education system, which is just Montessori-like, but they kind of use a bunch of kind of Deepak Chopra-like quotes to describe it, which i not down on. A little more. Araville is by no means perfect. Not a utopia, of course, it is a real place. In the feature-length film below, you will hear stories of struggle, heartache, disappointment, and hope. But Aravillians have a common dream, that through all their mistakes and failures, they will find a better way. Now, there's a general sense what Back to Land and other hippie communes is that, like, you know, we get it right here, and then we can spread it out. But the mechanism for doing that is, well, missing. And, well, I would prefer leftist movements attempt to reform the system in various ways to take, you know, chip away at the inequities and equality of our society rather than attempt to start over in little islands, which is why I call the last episode Islands of Anarchy. Kind of contrast that with wider movements that include, well, magnitudes more people, and maybe they're not completely breaking away, but they are can slowly make a new society that is, in fact, different over a number of generations. But now, from Slate, uh, some more in, some actual in-depth journalism on Aeroville. So now we got the kind of boilerplate PR. Now let's look at someone who actually visited and rode and, and kind of lived there for a bit of time. Uh, written by Maddie Crowell. India's Aeroville was envisioned as an international community free of government, money, religion, and strife. It hasn't exactly worked out quite as planned. Travel and Utopia is the name of the article. But it's also very um, not car-centric. There really aren't any cars. I thought a bottle of wine would be an appropriate gift to bring to Utopia. It was June in Pondicherry, a sleepy beach town off the Bay of Bengal, characterized by its post-colonial French influence and the mid-afternoon heat was oppressive, peaking just above 100 degrees. My clothes were damp, going on, uh, taking uh, a three-hour bus ride from Chennai to Pondicherry to Araville. I called Maha Travels, taxi service, and it's just a little detail. So this is a very kind of travelogue-type journalism. I will be skipping paragraphs that just kind of describe, uh, here's what I did as a person visiting. Within an hour, a sleek air-conditioned car was there to pick me up. The taxi driver, a man originally from Tamil Nadu, wearing a freshly pressed collared shirt, eyed the bottle of wine, and he said, please hide this, he told me. He put the bottle in his glove compartment and gave a vague answer about police charging fines for liquor. I asked if alcohol was allowed in Araville, and he said no, but no one follows this rule. We drove in silence for 20 minutes. Araville was built by hand by the flower power generation of the 60s. It was a psychological revolution by W.M. Sullivan, noted in his book The Dawning of Araville, a venture in which Marx has flavored socialism and anarchy. There is no money, no government, no religion, no skyscrapers or expressways, no newspapers with headlines of war, poverty, and genocide. Built for 50000 Araville today has only about 
2,500 permanent residents, roughly 5,000 visitors. Self-selected exiles from more than 100 countries. Iraville wasn't just some hippie haven. It was designed to be a poster child for India itself. According to a 1982 Indian Supreme Court ruling, Iraville is in conformity with India's highest ideals and aspirations. Thus, they donate about 200,000 to Iraville every year. UNESCO has protected the township since its birth in 68. But for a professed utopia, Iraville has a laundry list of problems. High up on the list are robbery, sexual assault cases of a non-gated community surrounded by other local villages. But there has been more drastic cases of rape, suicide, and even murder. Very few, though. It's, it's in bold. It's a little sensational there. My, wheel, uh, my taxi sneaked through bright red dust roads, deeper into the forest, passing shops, with Bob Marley t-shirts hung like laundry outside. And thus, there's a lot of uh, New Age stuff. I'm very not down on New Age. I'm a little anti-New Age. It's, it's pure aesthetics, and I don't like it. Whether we were driving in a giant circle or a straight path, I do n- did not know. The roads were a labyrinth of complicated, unlabeled paths and dead ends. Eventually, we hit a giant Buckminster Fuller-esque golden dome. Uh, that is the Manor the driver said, the soul of Aeroville. What is it? The building was shaped like a golf ball, but seemed to function like an anthill. Clumps of people and tour groups walking toward the center. He said it's a place for meditation. Uh, let's skip ahead. And she arrived at the place of her... Oh, yeah, okay. No. A woman appeared at the door, a naked baby in her arms, introduced herself, as most Aerovillians do, by one name, Shanta, my host. She was born in Aeroville roughly 30 years ago, and her presence was casual and exceptionally calm. I presented the bottle of wine, which she accepted immediately, if not eagerly. She gave me a tour of the house in which we, uh, she lived with her American husband and two small children. It was modest, two small bedrooms, a bathroom. One of the bedrooms had an air conditioner, and the family huddled around it during the scorching daylight hours. So, houses that aren't quite built for the heat. Upstairs, the turrets had been converted into a makeshift apartment, featuring a room with a desk, uh, and the first solar panel I'd seen in my ten months in India, as one of hundreds, if not thousands, I'd come to see during my stay. I asked how much it cost to rent the room, a detail that was unlisted online. We don't really set a fixed rate, Shanta said. You have to pay Aeroville 150 rubies, that's 250 in U.S. dollars a night as a guest. You can pay us whatever you want or feel is appropriate. And that's kind of gift economy. Uh, we settled on uh, $5 a night, that's 300 rupees. Shanta gave me the keys uh, to a motorbike, and I followed her down the labyrinth to the town hall. I quickly discovered that for an anarchical township, Aeroville's bureaucracy rivals that of India itself. Aside from the fact that you had to take your shoes off before entering, Town Hall seemed no different from any other government building anywhere in the world. A swath of administration desks lined the rooms that felt like a slow-paced newsroom as long lines of customers waited to be called on. Everyone seemed to be wearing the same get-me-out-of-here expression. An Indian woman in a bright green sari greeted me from behind the counter with an uninterested nod. Uh, she asked for, you know, V-sub troubles, uh, but eventually got a photocopy. Back in the town hall with a photocopy, nah, 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 I headed on a quick tour of the neighborhood, following the red roads down deserted paths. Don't need to read all of this. Okay, a little background. Airville was officially founded in 68 by Amira Afazas, a French woman known locally as the mother. Photo is plastered on nearly every wall. So there's a cult of personality around here. Deeply spiritual woman, blah, blah, and all that. Arabindo is kind of like a, a nationalist activist turned spiritual leader, similar to Gandhi in that in some ways. 
talking about her day, the diet there. It's all local food. Um, but let's go on to, oh yeah, you have to be careful alone, she said. She was smoking a cigarette, squinting every time she exhaled. I said I'd, uh, I heard a woman got attacked at night. Uh, oh, I, I'd heard women can get attacked. Arrowville has 32 entrances and no fences. Women, especially when alone, are vulnerable to harassment. There have been several cases of rape. A few years ago, a young woman from the U.S. was attacked during a jog. So it's really hard to get out alone. I nodded vaguely. Energy was, oh yes, you said, the energy here can be really harsh at times. You can get stuck in a dark loop, and it's really hard to get out alone. I nodded vaguely. Energy was a word I come to hear a lot in Araville. An all-inclusive description for good and bad moods, personality types, various anxieties, certain places. In a way, all of Araville was gazed by energy. Mention of vortexes, not touching that. Uh, here's here's a but here's an important point here. The next morning, Alma, the Tamil word for mother, used to describe daily maids. Came. She was a local Tamil villager who cleaned the house and watched the kids. Pretty much every Arovillian had one, and a gardener from a nearby village of Villa Pratuma. Shanta explained it was a way for the wealthy township to employ the local villagers. So. Seems like there's an economic hierarchy here between Arrowville and the surrounding villages, and thus, crime. Hmm. And since, you know, and, and Arrowville's ways are not spreading out. If only they could, right? Then these villages could be integrated. It could actually grow out, maybe into a whole state. Meanwhile, on the other coast of India, there is a state that is run by the Communist Party, and... um and they have something uh, of a different utopian project that is, in fact, inclusive. There's something exclusive about Araville, and that's kind of one of the things about gift economy is, like, if you're not in the social dynamic and the friend group or whatever, the clique, you're not in it. Um, it's not all-inclusive like money. Money can just be used. Uh, but why? Let's. I'll get to that in the next hour. She mentions all the different dancing and events that are put on clandestinely. Uh, I asked the bakery owner and smiling Indian man why there were no events in June. Oh, he says, look, everyone leaves in the summer. It's too hot. He explained that most of the foreigners leave for a few months, sometimes for half a year, to return to their home countries, see family, and more importantly, earn money. But wait a minute. This is supposed to be a moneyless town. Why is it important for anyone who lives there to earn money abroad? Inside the bakery is full of visitors, young foreigners who had come for a few months, or in some a few years to farm and meditate. Most I met were exceptionally warm-hearted, friendly, and lost, lonely in the particular way of those searching to belong somewhere. Though a place to actualize human unity, Araville is also a place for a rare and dedicated breed of introspection, a space established primarily to worship the quote-unquote divine consciousness. A slippery term that, as a young German visitor I spoke with inside Ganesh Bakery, explained behind closed eyes, you just feel. She told me that she'd come to Araville because she felt stifled in the West. Even though there are such communities in the West, so it's kind of like, why do you have to go to India to do this? Another woman I met from America told me that she'd moved to Araville be uh, because everything in the States just feels really fake. Well, that's true. She was on the waiting list to become an Aerovillian, uh, a two-year process that requires applicants to prove they are self-sustainable and dedicated to the cause. 
Applicants are not allowed to leave Araville for two years and must work for free as a contribution to the town. After two years, they face an entry services, a group, a working group that reviews applications and ultimately decides who can become a citizen. When, uh, while Araville houses a recorded 2,500, I was told that the actual number was much higher, roughly 10,000. The waiting list to become an Aravillian is becoming longer because of a housing shortage. Like, well, if, but if you're working for two years, why isn't all of that just to build more houses? When I told people I talked to I was working on an article about Araville, they asked almost uniformly if I'd check with the Outreach Media Center. Kind of like Occupy that way. So she meets one of the Outreach Media Center, okay? It isn't just propaganda and stuff. Uh, she names Elaine Caffron, originally from Canada. She was helping a sick friend that day and asked if we could talk at her house. I followed her on her motorcycle to one of the first built settlements. When we start to scratch the surface of Araville, she's, this is her speaking, it's a lot more ugly than from the outside. You start to see all the problems here. It's deeply layered. She told me in the backyard of her house. She recounted nightmarish accounts I never imagined could have existed in Araville. A 2010 murder, when a local villager was decapitated by gang members from another village that borders Araville over an unresolved dispute. Honor killing stuff. His head was dumped inside Town Hall. Gain was caught and incarcerated, and thus there have been no incidents since. Going through a number of other crimes. Elaine came to Araville first as a volunteer and then quit her corporate job to move to the township permanently. She was the first Aravillian I'd met who spoke completely openly about its problems. One being that neighbors did little to help one another. I broke my arm and my friend from Poon had to fly down to help me, she said. So that's kind of really surprising to me. You know, a hippie commune where there actually isn't a sense of neighborliness? People just kind of actually keep to themselves. Well, that's the thing about introspective meditation. You're really just in your own head a lot of the time. That's my my kind of big, big problem with New Age stuff. But the bigger problem, she explained, was the question of who controlled the money in a moneyless society. I pay 31 lakh, roughly 48,000, to the housing committee as a mandatory donation from my house five years ago. So you're paying for the house? Later, I found a photo of the house in an architecture magazine and saw they had sold for a third of that. I don't know where that money went. I don't know who controls the funds, she explained to me with a hint of frustration. And she herself is in one of the working groups, right? I couldn't find out who controlled the funds either, says the journalist. Although Araville doesn't have a self-sustaining economy, most Aravillians either come in with savings or leave for a few months to work in their home countries, Araville has a lot of money. On top of the steep donations, Aravillians pay to become stewards of their homes. The Indian government donates ten, tens of millions of rubies each year. Again, that 200000 in the U.S. As do private donors and visitors when they come. When the money goes, where the money goes, seems to be a central question. But whom to ask is maybe the better question. In lieu of the government, Araville consists of spontaneous self-formed committees that loosely run the place. Housing, working, women's safety, task force funds, nascent management. I think that, that would be the place to go. But whenever she, uh, she, Elaine referred me to the group called Unity Fund, but after several attempts to get in touch, no one would respond to my inquiries. So all these groups exist, but they didn't get back to her. Weird. The government of India also employs a permanent secretary of Araville, a man named Severus Martin, who agreed to meet with me. 
But an hour after I arranged the interview, she was contacted that he was too busy. In fact, like all the other working groups or committees, wrote a similar response when asked, they were too busy and unable to meet. No one seemed to be able to answer this question. I was told to check the website, which had a friendly pie chart with percentages of money donated, but nowhere does the state actual numbers. Still, most Aravillians aren't interested in the question of who controls the funds. That's definitely a state of privilege there. After all, Araville isn't supposed to have currency, a principle the township is still trying to enforce. But here's a big turnaround. When I arrived, I was forced to buy with cash an Aerocard and told to use it in shops and restaurants around the township. It was a bit like a meal card in college. If I lost it, I'd have to pay a $10 fine in cash. But the idea hadn't quite caught on. The first shop where I tried my Aerocard asked for cash instead, as did the second. When the third asked for cash, I asked why the Aerocard existed. The shopkeeper shrugged, uninterestingly. Most Aravillians I met didn't seem bothered by money. They were artists, spiritual dreamers, eco-farmers, creative adventurers. They moved into a world that allowed them to forget the real one. And that's kind of New Age culture to me in a nutshell. You kind of move into your own world so you don't have to engage with the real one. Because the real one is harsh. It is fake. But then you need to fight to change it, right? But when you do that, you, you you hit against that wall of oppression of the state, all, all the bull crap, you know? And, and you're kind of left just posting or ramming against the wall like the capital, capital takeover uh, where you just don't have a plan or a goal or a platform, content, right? right? So, and I'll get into that in the second half. We'll be much more positive about the content. This is the kind of like gift economy, going moneyless right away, Doing it in an island, you know, an island of anarchy or a commune. Not, not. I'm, I'm kind of disparaging it as I'm doing this, you know, because the the first thing I read was very positive, saying that it was getting more sustainable. This person who visited from you know, the journalist for Slate says she's not seeing that, um, and they're not even using, they're not even going cashless inside of their town, and there's an economic hierarchy between themselves and all the surrounding area. Oh, yeah, yeah, So he, uh, journalist meets with a French man, older, leading that introspective life, visits the meditation center, the amounted air, uh, does, in fact, enjoy going and using it, though they did have to wait a few hours. You have to wait a lot longer if you're not a resident, but a resident can kind of use it, and he uses it uh, once a month. Mentions the charter. I'm not going through that. I want to skip ahead. Oh, yeah, okay. Last bit here. By the time I left Araville after two weeks, just two weeks visit, I was craving the brashness of Indian traffic and the clutter that comes with being part of a society. The shouting, the bargaining, the accessibility to shops, and people in conversations about what was happening in the world. When I arrived back in Pondicherry, probably mispronouncing that, I began talking with a bar owner there about Araville. Originally from Delhi, he told me he'd spent some time in Araville, mostly he admitted because he was chasing a girl. I asked him what he thought of it. That place, he waved his hand at the ground. They're all looking to be cured. The ones who are cured, they leave. The rest, they're stuck. Cured of what, I asked. That, he responded, is the question. So yeah, that's the fun. That's the fun one there. 
more on alternative currencies, especially looking at the ones active in America and how far we can go with them. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially along with other producers and citizen journalists with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show of your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. Paper and you look 30 pounds on the way. When you go to get a word of advice from the fat little past, I hear.
will tell you to love evermore. So when hunger comes, I rap better than, better than at the window. At the window. Who's there? Hunger. Yeah, hunger. See how love flies out the door for money makes the bird. Go round. The bird. Go round. The bird. Go round. Money makes the. Go round. That clinking, clanking sound of money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, 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 money. Get it, get it, get it, money, Keep saving up all those pennies, you never know. Baby, it's not easy saving all your pennies. Even when it's not raining, your world is turning upside down. One day you hope to start all over again. Something to say, the banks don't care to understand. No thanks, buddy, you did your best. You wake up from your American dream, the real world ain't on a TV screen. The system is broken, corrupt. You're saving up to go bankrupt. Wake up, wake up, you're saving up to go bankrupt. Wake up, wake up. Saving up to go bankrupt Keep your saving You're looking for a future Look it straight in the eye You won't blink Who's to think You got no place to hide You got no savings Don't own a home Hot air's blowing us all around Now not everyone can join the band But everyone can take a stand Let's build tomorrow brick by brick When the good luck comes it's gonna stick We may be down but not for long Come on, you wake up from your American dream The real world ain't on a TV screen The system's broke and it's corrupt Saving up to go bankrupt Wake up, wake up Saving up to go bankrupt Wake up, you wake up You're saving up to go bankrupt Keep saving those pennies Oh, anger's mounting everywhere The cream doesn't always rise to the top Sometimes it's crap And sometimes it's rot Ben Franklin was a cooler cat A good conscience is where it's at Keep saving up And you'll go bankrupt You'll wake up from your American dream The real world ain't on a TV screen Systems broke, man, it's corrupt You're saving up to go bankrupt Wake up, wake up You're saving up to go bankrupt Wake up, come on, wake up We're saving up to come back home It's gonna take a cool breeze to fix this meltdown
Wake up, wake up, keep saving up to go bankrupt. Okay, uh, we're back. I'm juggling a few hey. things in a moment. Hey, okay, you're coming in? I think you're coming in all right. But you said you're, you were having mic trouble. Did you do your debate? Yeah, I did my debate. I did not use this mic for my debate. Am I still coming across well? Uh, actually, very good. Very good. So, um, oh, God. So, I spent, uh, um, so just to recap the last hour, I spent the first 20 minutes or so talking about the Capitol Hill protests, reading a piece from, uh, right. Both sides, three-way fight, because we're being, we're fighting both as the left, both fascists and the state. We're not waiting for the state to bail us out or to come down or big corporations. They're all basically bastions of democracy now. Even Coca-Cola and all, all of these big corporations <laughs> that love, love fair elections, uh, abroad and at home, saying that like they're all defending the sanctity of our election system because they stopped Boogaloo boys from making a mess of things i guess i don't know it's easy to right. take a stance it's all posting it's all statics in the future we'll do an episode on statics i'm really interested in covering that topic in detail uh, both using solar punk as kind of an art as a jumping off point but also talking about like the positions of youtubers and twitch streamers which we're now joining but at the moment uh and, uh, and then I covered gift in the gift economy, utopian gift economy in India called Aeroville. And it's hmm, kind of both. It's kind of that's a, it's an, a good experiment, but it's it has its shortcomings of not just dropping all currency whatsoever, since currency is kind of a good tool. So but and I also covered a wiki article that kind of listed all the different types of leftist alternative currencies or at least the currents of them. So we'll cover time banking in this hour. Uh, alternative currencies, local ones, and uh, the compensation for effort of participatory economics. So, like, currencies that are based on the labor theory of value, we both love that. But there's also other theories of value as well, uh, which we have covered. Let's go into time banking. Um, God, there was a, there was an order, but because some refer to others and. But I think the main order was to do the wiki one that referred to all of them first and then go through each one. So time banking. Um, this is from Praxis Center, the Argus Center for Social Justice Leadership, part of Kal Kalamazoo College. Kalamazoo is central Michigan. Mm. And also thus um, kind of a D, kind of Rust Belt USA, and thus you have all of these more leftist community economics-oriented projects. So time banking, a revolutionary mm -hmm. model for building community resilience. This is written by Bailey Mead, practice managing editor. In this new political climate, which brings daily assaults to the vitality of our communities, the safety and well-being of ourselves and our neighbors, knowing who you can trust and who you can call on feels more important than ever before. This is something that was even missing in the utopian commune of Araville. We've seen our neighbors terrorized in recent weeks by ICE raids and the Muslim ban, this is from 2017, during which the first month of the Trump administration. Good times. And this time, when many may be afraid to take bold actions to protect their neighbors, it is imperative to build solidarity between communities. 
especially with immigrant ones. We need each other, but what if we don't need each other? Or maybe we know each other, but how do we begin to work together? Our survival requires active resistance, but our future requires us to simultaneously build resilience and create sustainable new ways of being that allow us all to live and thrive. We know that effective resistance requires connection. Connection helps build resilience. So how do we truly connect? Time banks, an alternative currency model that helps create strong community relationships, are active in at least 34 countries throughout the world. Time banking reinforces the inherent and equal value of every person and allows people to access services they might not otherwise afford. It is not bartering, which is subject to income tax, but rather a circle of giving or a skill exchange. A time bank consists of members who agree to exchange services. Individuals, organizations, and businesses can all be members. You do something for someone else for an hour, and you earn an hour time credit to spend later on a service from anyone else who is a member. For example, if you drive someone to the airport, you earn an hour of credit, which you can then spend by having someone mow your lawn. That person who mowed your lawn then also earns a credit and spends it for their computer uh, repair. Time banks foster a culture and cycle of ongoing reciprocity. The concept is simple, but the implications are huge. Our ancestors knew that cooperation and exchange were essential to health and survival, but the legacy of colonialism, capitalism, and racism have left us so isolated from each other that we often don't even know our neighbors. Building on this ancestral knowledge about the strength of community and work in the 19th century socialists, who introduced time-based currencies. Edgar Kahn, former legal counsel and speechwriter to Robert Kennedy, formalized the idea of time banking in his book, Time Dollars, the new currency that enables Americans to turn their hidden resource, time, into personal security and community renewal. That has a really long title. A book co-authored with jo Jonathan Rowe in 92. He also introduced five core values in his book called No More Throw Away People. We do have a throwaway society, don't we? Uh, the five principles are asset. Everyone has something of value to share with someone else. Two is redefining work. There are some forms of work that money will not easily pay for, like building a strong family, revitalizing a neighborhood, making democracy work, advancing social justice, so on. Time credits were designed to reward, recognize, and honor that work, you know, social work. Number three is reciprocity. Oh, helping that works as a two-way street empowers everyone involved, the receiver as well as the giver. The question, how can I help you, needs to change. So we ask, will you help someone too? Paying it forward ensures that together we help each other build the world we all will live in. This is the sentiment expressed by solidarity, not charity. Number four is social networks. Helping each other reweave communities of support, strength and trust community is built by sinking roots so not moving around all the time building trust creating networks by using time banking we can strengthen and support these activities it's really hard to build community with people who are going traveling for months or they go from town to town or like you know they're not they're not they're just not there you know you can't depend on them number five last is respect respect underlies freedom of speech Freedom of religion and everything we value. Respect supplies the heart and the soul of democracy. We strive to respect 
where people are in the moment, not where we hope they will be at some future point. I first learned about time banking almost a decade ago when I met Kim Hodge, former labor organizer and executive director of the Michigan Alliance of Time Banks. I worked at the area agency on aging, and she wanted to explore the possibility of integrating Time Bank to Aging Services Network in Southeast Michigan. While that particular Time Bank never got any traction, I was intrigued by the concept and the possibilities for my own Southwest Detroit neighborhood, home to a large immigrant population where the average household income is lower than the rest of the city. I was involved in our community garden and knew many of the neighbors on my own block, but didn't know many of them well. So there was already a project that was a base of interaction. Our Hubbard Farms neighborhood was an, had an email listserv that we shared information about everything from local crime to negligent suburban landlords to cultural events and so on. We were connected, but at least in my case, I didn't feel like we had meaningful relationships. Kim knew another woman in my neighborhood was interested in starting a time bank. The three of us met and very slowly began to organize the Southwest Detroit Time Bank in 09 which is now called Unity in Our Community, and it has grown to 690 members. The beginning was slow, full of stops and starts, but it wasn't long before we assembled a kitchen cabinet, that's what they're calling it, the, their committee, to lead a time bank. We elected a treasurer, a secretary, collected $20 from each person to print business cards, put up a website, uh, subscribe to Our World, that's a software specifically designed to track time bank hours. I've made an account on it myself. And all world members can set up profile pages, list offer and requests. They're basically like a server service. Basically, um, they offer like you create accounts there for your time bank and then add members like a Facebook account. In order to your accountability, the member performing the service logs the time and the member receives the service as to approve it before time credit is transferred and so on. Also, kitchen cabinets committees also act as coordinators where they kind of set up orientations one little bit of advice was that, you know, you have an orientation and you have basically no one leaves until they have completed one trade or at least set up to do one trade. So they get the experience and it's like, oh, this is great. I will do more of this now. When starting it. Southwest Detroit Time Bank, we found ourselves faced with other challenges. It turns out that people have a really hard time asking for and accepting help. While we had many offers, we had very few takers. On top of that, when a time bank first begins, there are typically only a handful of members, so the offers are not very diverse. In our case, all of our original members had to commit to taking each other up on one or two offers every week so that we could begin to earn time credits and get experience doing it. To help us grow, we also employed another common practice, allowing members to earn credit by attending meetings, handing out flyers or recruiting new members kind of has an MLM sense to it that way, doesn't it? I know. It does sound like an MLM. Sorry, well, I was, uh, yeah. I had to go to the bathroom for a sec. So oh, yeah, no worries. I stepped, and I hope you didn't. I just have an earworm in my brain when, like, whenever there's kind of a sense of, you know, one person invites 10 more, and it's like, well, isn't that like what MLM does? Yeah. But there is a significant difference in that there is, in fact, real content, and no one is, in fact, being scammed. Well, the problem with an MLM is that it requires additional people in order to continue. But with this, it's just that having a lot of people is good because having 
and all the people able to exist within this system is like it's a better system. So having a lot of people being able to exist within it is good. Bingo. Uh, within a few years, the time bank had grown to 150 members. That's like Dunbar's number, uh, if you need that reminder, which is the number recommended for a group with enough diversity and skills to keep people engaged. So that's kind of like the main goal. Uh, that's the first like gate. Uh, Bridging Communities, a nonprofit serving seniors in Southwest Detroit, agreed to host the time bank and dedicate staff time to it. So it's, it's another tip is to kind of have a larger nonprofit act as a kind of umbrella group to help you out. Uh, finding a host organization is an important step for sustainability with any time bank. It not only makes it possible to seek grant funding, but because volunteer leaders eventually tire out or move on, a paid staff position ensures consistency and stability. So a little background. I went to a time banking con- uh, conference in 2013. So I literally spent a whole weekend listening to people from these groups, literally un- in person as well as other kind of lectures, which kind of really got me in alternative currencies and why I really like their potential and that municipal governments, city, local governments that are neoliberal can, can like get on board with it. It's, it's kind of one of those, I feel non-reformist reforms. It's definitely making more post capitalism. It's not capitalistic to do this stuff. And it's, doesn't on its face seem like a direct threat threat because the aesthetics are just community economics or community building, which is something that all liberals say they're for, but they're still just giving charity money at the end of the day. Now, I also attempted, I attempted to do this exactly what this is describing, finding people to do this with me, though I was alone. Um, I went to local nonprofit. Uh, you know, to see like they're interested in helping me do this or at least give me some support. That turns out they had tried this before back in 06, before the recession. And again, it was, impo- they found it impossible to get any takers because at the end of the day, in the hood, people do not trust each other. If you're not an immediate family, you might as well be a potential criminal or someone who's going to rob you. So, they really couldn't get any trades moving, even with a direct co- coordinator setting them up. Uh, so it was quite a big failure, and they just, when, when I mentioned it, they're like, it's very nice, but, and it, it took a while. It actually, oh, no, what happened was the meeting did not tell me this. The leaders just kind of gave a, we have grants with strings attached, we can't do this. And then later on, I get the full story from the staff or the secretary at the nonprofit of the what happened that it was tragic, it was a failure, it was really bad results, and like, oh, I kind of wish I was just told they we tried this already, and it was a, a bust. So, yeah, otherwise I left, like, thinking, like, how corrupt is this um, nonprofit director that, like, he's not, doesn't want to give this a shot? And there were cops in the room, too, and they didn't seem against it. Um Fortunately, the unity in our community time bank has continued to grow and make a tangible difference in members' lives. For example, a mechanic joined the time bank, making car repairs accessible to those who might otherwise be stranded in a city with unreliable public transportation. Welcome to Detroit. Members also recently helped uh, Musi Ali rebuild his house after his family of 12 survived a house fire as a result of arson. Those are just a couple examples of the more than 25,000 hours members have exchanged with each other since the time bank began. Early on, the neighborhood health clinic joined, creating the possibility for uninsured and or undocumented members 
to access healthcare using time credits. So basically what this allows you to do is not so much monetize volunteering, but it turns volunteering into actual economic activity, not just charity, but a practice of solidarity. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, in those starting local ones is, of course, more effective in community building. There is an, uh, There are some online platforms that do time banking pretty well. One that I'm a member of is called Simbi. That's S-I-M-B-I. And I've done a number of trades. And in that one, they don't do, the credits aren't in hours, but they are, in fact, in a type of digital currency that they just call credits. And they give you a bunch of credits to start with, which is something that time banks have learned, like just give people a few hours to start with. Because otherwise it's like, well, I have to earn some first. That means you have to get a trade before you can make a trade, right? And, right. But, but like, unlike capitalism, and because it's digital, you can just make the credits and give them out. Right. And there's no limit to how many can be produced, made, or exchanged. Oh, um, I, I like that a lot. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, I really like sharing info about time banking. Um, there is always some skepticism of like, you know, how do I trust people to do a good job or something like that? Or, uh, what was, what was the kind of pushback I got? I'm sure there is some like, there's skepticism that can occur. And, and of course, for people who are completely in the mode of dependency and people not trusting each other, but it's, it's out there too. Time banks can be a way of meeting basic needs. But they can also be a way of building skills. Say you have always wanted to start a catering service, but you want to give it a try before launching a business. You could offer to cater a party or teach a cooking class and see how you like it. Or maybe you can always wanted to learn Spanish. You can spend your time credits taking classes or being tutored by other members. An especially humanizing aspect of time banking is the common agreement that everyone's hour has the same value and the people of all ages and abilities are valued equally. A physician's hour spent performing a physical exam at, say, a free clinic is worth the same as a child's hour spent pulling dandelions from someone's lawn. An accountant's time is spent prepping taxes is worth the same as someone returning bottles for refunds. All about work is valued equally based on negotiation between giver and receiver. This redefinition of work breaks down class constructs and turns the capitalist idea of work on its head. So it abolishes work in a way. Simbi allows you, um, by getting rid of the time-based credit system, you the credit currency is more loose and flexible in that you can charge whatever you want. But also the site will tell you that the average amount of credits in people's current accounts is 60. So you really shouldn't charge for anything more than 60. In fact, you should probably charge 20 or, you know, or because it's like, there's no limit to credits. You can just give credits out for a lot of little bitty things and just keep things moving. And it really doesn't matter matter how many credits you have because, but it really, it, it breaks it if people treat the credits in Simbi like dollars. Like I traded 150 credits for a massage because that person charges $150 per session for a massage. And I'm like, well, that's not really the point of this. <laughs> Because 150 credits is kind of hard to earn. You know, I had to do a number of right. trades to get that much because everyone else is charging $20, $30. Um, people are charging amounts based on their speciality, right? If it's audio production, it's like, well, this is something I should charge a lot for. It may be amount in dollars. And it could replace dollars, though. 
by doing it, by charging time instead of dollars, we don't need dollars. We don't need to be earning dollars from the capital economy. Another benefit is that time banks value the contribution of seniors. In a society that aligns human value to a person's ability to produce, older adults are burdened with a diminished perception of their worth. This, uh, when this is internalized in combination with a social isolation and a decreased physical ability, many elders succumb to depression and illness. In a time bank, the inherent value of wisdom of our elders can be received and valued. Yada, yada, yada. Skip ahead. Uh, for every benefit of time banking, there are questions about things like reliability, reliability, trustworthiness. Hodge says, time banks just don't attract the kinds of people that are looking to pull one over on anyone. You have to do your own gut check, just like you would if you were hiring anyone to come into your home and perform a service. In the years that the Michigan Alliance of Time Banks has been in operation, because in Michigan there's quite a number of them, we have not heard a single issue with liability, she said. The biggest, single biggest challenge is keeping people engaged in their habit of asking each other for help. Most successful time banks have a dedicated organizer who knows the members and reaches out to make these matches. There's just a few of the possibilities and examples of time banking, but communities across the globe are creating new ways to use this model. The time is right for finding ways to lessen our dependence on consumerism and strengthen our connection to each other. More information on making, starting, or connecting to an existing time bank, visit Time Banks USA or Our World. And I did attempt to make one for Albany or something like that, but I really wanted a working group with me, and I didn't really get enough takers. And this was back in Occupy Albany, so this was back, um, I haven't really touched this since 2014, I think. And oh, wow. I kind of, I've, my, my working, uh, work, uh, well, my, anytime this, I bring this up again, it's basically to kind of do a public talk to maybe gym up some interest. But I think maybe starting it, I do have a page, uh, Albany Time Bank, and I do get uh, some views from passerbys now and then. I mostly just direct them. Something. Yeah, I, I mostly direct them to Simbi and just say, like, if enough people in the area join Simbi, we can make a group there, and that would be a start. Okay, we're halfway through the hour, um, but I want to cover uh, participatory economics mentioned earlier in the hour during the labor credit wiki. And I'm not going to read. I can't read all of this, but I will refer everyone to it. It's participatoryeconomics.info. And uh, there's a number of institutions that are part of it. One is, you know, worker councils or democratic councils that are both for production and consumption, thus like neighborhood assemblies uh, talked about before. Balanced jobs where, you know, most like one the idea behind this is that class stratification comes from that you have jobs that uh, assign a powering work and you have jobs that disempower people. So... One way to balance and kind of lessen classism is to have job complexes or a balanced job where, let's say, taking a hospital, you have doctors that spend a few hours a day doing the cleanup, and you have custodians that help with the financing. Um, and then everyone can kind of take up a little bit of these skills and become pretty good at a lot of different things. And because, like, oh, but that's less time the doctor is doing their work. Well, in a new economic system, there will be more doctors because at the moment the number of doctors is actually capped by the profession themselves. That's one of those dirty secrets, that they cap how many um, 
medical student graduates there can be. So just the um and and, and, a, and an acknowledgement that you know if you want a fair compensation system, it has to be for effort, not for how much property you own, not for winning the genetic lottery. You know, if you're stronger than even if you use time-based, you know, someone with more can do more in one hour could, you know, d d gets more done. No, no, no. Time-making uh, circumvents this as well, but dollars does not. You know, what What if, like, um, say, you, uh, you usually would pay by the hour, but what if one person does the same amount of work, or they, they produce the same amount, right? but they don't work as hard over five hours versus the person who works and finishes in three hours, right? And this is right. where we get a lot of the waste in bullcrap jobs or you know, like you have salaried workers that are paid X amount regardless of what they're doing in that eight hours they're given every day. They could finish right. in half the time, and but if they're paid by the hour, then of course that's then they're losing out and they're going to stretch, maybe stretch the workout for the whole day. It, right. it should be based on effort, how much effort you're using that way. Um, if you do an X amount of effort or produce X amount, you know, uh, let's see. Now, current it economy. Should be about, it should be based on how much value was generated by your direct labor. Right. And in the case of Paracom, it's social value. So in our current economy, quote, I'm reading now, an individual's consumption rights, he uses the word, uh, phrase consumption rights, depend on a variety of factors, including ownership, uh, bargaining power, meaning like are you more persuasive or do you have more charisma? Like, you know, sometimes people are hired based on their charisma and how tall they are. And, and this, you know, and, and that just makes me like, what a garbage system. Training, uh, luck, and to far lesser extent effort, which results in an unequal and unfair distribution of burdens and benefits. However, the only factor under our control is our effort. Therefore, in Paracom, we aim to compensate workers according to their effort or personal sacrifice. You know, a coal miner should always actually be paid more than a doctor. And it's like, because if you ask people training to be doctors, as um, Michael Alpert has, they will... Even if you keep raising the amount of money the coal miner gets, they'll still be very hesitant to be a coal miner versus being a doctor. Worker councils are advised, uh, these would be co-op, like think co-ops, advised to set up procedures in order to provide members with an effort rating. This means that those who choose to make greater personal sacrifice at work are rewarded for greater consumption rights, the ability to get stuff. As explained before, effort can take different forms could be longer working hours, or at a higher intensity, or by performing more dangerous, unhealthy, or less gratifying or unpleasant work. Dirty jobs, you know. Uh, it is important to note that the process of allocating income is separated from the process of charging workplaces for their use of different categories of labor. Meaning, the income a worker receives is not the same as the cost of the labor that the workplace is charged, charged by, like, the commons. This will be explained under planning. A self-managed worker council, a.k.a. a co-op, has autonomy over how they go about rating their members. The only restriction placed on them is the average effort rating that the worker council can award their members that's capped, you know, maximum income kind of thing. This could be done 
by either giving the same cap to all workplaces, so it's like across the board, very stringent, stiff, uh, maximum income, or particularly, uh, probably the better way, basing it on the social benefit to social cost ratio. So about social benefit, is what you're making popular? Does it have high marginal utility value? Those kind of things. It actually takes that in, into account. Versus the social cost, which is pollution, are your workers, do your workers need more health care because they're so stressed out? The, re the reason for capping, though, is to avoid the possibility of workers overestimating each other uh, and thus leading to an effort rating inflation. It is likely that workplaces will come up with different approaches for measuring effort. This will be democratically decided individuals, um, so on and so on. And it goes on. But here, the main maxim for distribution is remuneration to each according to their effort or sacrifice and need. Further issues and questions surrounding compensation based on effort and need concerning incentives, efficiency, measurability are addressed at length in other, the other materials included. A summary, in summary, differences in income in a paracom or, or democratic economy would be based on differences in the effort or personal sacrifice workers choose to make in performing socially valuable work as judged by co-workers, okay? Not a faceless bureaucrat. Compensation based on effort delivers economic justice while providing adequate incentives. Also providing income based on need further solidarity towards others by providing for those in society who are unable to contribute or has suffered misfortune. Because it also mentions that, again, like there's the base, like um, consumer councils, meaning like local government on the consuming side that decides, say, what public consumption will be. And public consumption will include, you know, like a basic UBI. Okay, so moving on, um, Michael, can you right. can you get so to the Boston Globe pace? Last spring, when money is running short, print your own. So when what's going what's going on? So this is just a few counties away from us, uh, Mike. Um, it is, but a uh, different economic zone because you know people are more likely to commute a few counties north from us than they are a few counties east. So last spring, shortly after it became clear that COVID-19 was more than just a little flu and that local shops would be down and out for more than just a little while, America got to wondering, how can we save small businesses? Many commentators demanded quick federal relief. Some consumers went on gift card shopping sprees. And 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang tweeted a proposal combining the two. Government-issued debit cards redeemable only at locally owned small businesses. I just want to kind of new explain. I clicked on the link for what the gift card shopping spree meant. You had local Good Samaritan charity cases. They bought up gift cards at local businesses and gave them to people almost like mm. as a subsidy. And then also kind of like the gift card almost acts... like a Mr. Beast type thing. A what? A Mr. Beast type thing. Yeah. And, um, but the gift card almost acts as like a, a loan in that like, you know, the, you're selling out uh, value, you're, you're making sales now so that people can buy things later when the lockdown's over. And Yang, who is 
slated to be the next mayor of New York City. Isn't that going to be fun? Isn't he from Schenectady? I'll have to check, but um, the, the I think he's a local. I uh, is he? I, I don't know, but I think um, so. I'm not saying I'm proud, but it's um, it's interesting <laughs> that like so so he got enough attention during the primary that he's now like his place in the DNC is kind of insured. So it's like the DNC Democratic Party is now like, well, let's find a place for Yang, right? Hmm. Right. Let's just make a mayor of New York City. <laughs> no, that definitely sounds like what they did. They're like, yeah. where should we put them? Eh, fuck it. Let's go New York. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that's exact. No, that's exactly what's happening. Don't, don't get it twisted. This is democracy in America, the one party state, the oligarchy, uh, rules. And the oligarchy says, oh, Yang, he's a fresh face and he'll, uh, Chapo was making jokes about like Reddit. He's like the Reddit candidate. So, uh, we'll have a Reddit mayor. So and, yeah. let us. I'm excited to see what New York City is going to look like with universal basic income, because I'm pretty sure that's just going to be what he does. Uh, and I if uh, that's, I don't know, that's his big thing. So I think it's possible, at least, that he might, that in an ideal world, that uh, this is me interpreting Andrew Yang positively. In an ideal yeah, world, he goes to New York and he gives everyone universal basic income. We see that it works, and we go, "All right, sure." Well, let's do we it. we see it work all over the place in the world, right? And so it's more like it will be blunted or something. Because remember, it'll be Yang as mayor of New York, brought to you by the DNC. So oh, that's true. We'll that's have true. a leash yeah. on him. Don't don't, don't yeah. always always for, don't always forget uh, that. that. So anyway, keep going. Or the Twitterazzi, I think, mostly condemned Yang's idea as stupid, impractical, and useless. Harsh. Yeah. And the debit cards never came to pass. As if the Twitterati oh. have political power in this country. Jesus Christ. Uh, consumers got stimulus checks and small businesses got pay, pay, uh, paycheck protection program loans instead. But... A piece of his idea, a currency that could only be spent at a local business, has been a fixture of life in Massachusetts Southern Berkshires since 2006. So it's not his idea. This whole, like, his idea, which has already been implemented all over the world. <laughs> right. It's not his idea. Okay. Anyway. So Berkshires. Oh, I love that. I, I spend a lot of times in the Berkshires. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, I like it. Yeah. It's it's a fun area, and mostly because uh, it's, set, it's settled by so many hippies, you know. So or uh, or ex or ex Cambridge grads, you know, from from the Boston Boston area. But uh, yeah, um, but it's 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 uh, the Berkshires so, refers to the mountain range that separates the Hudson and Connecticut River valleys. Yeah, it's where I it's where my home ski base is. Okay, it's where um a sleepaway camp I used to go is. Gotcha. All right. So Berkshires, the region's currency, are redeemable at over 400 Berkshire businesses, good for buying a pastry at the bakery or an hour of a lawyer's time, printed as real paper bills and adorned with hometown heroes like the Souls of Black Folk author W.E.B. Du Bois. Oh, yeah, I Great Barrington is where W.E.B. Du Bois was born. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been to that town a lot. Uh, 
Berkshires can be purchased at three local banks, and for shoppers, those fancy notes are more than just a reminder to buy local. They're also a way to get 5% off, because $95 gets you 100 Berkshires. It wasn't the first alternative currency in the world. It wasn't even the first in the region. But Berkshires are arguably the most successful. In the currency's 14 years of existence, the currency has accumulated 10 million dollars worth of Berkshires, and the model has inspired other regions abroad. Now, almost a year into America's COVID downturn, with roughly 800 small U.S. businesses closing each day, politicians are trying to repair the damage. Massachusetts is investing in a buy-local advertising campaign. I just California. Wanna, that is, it's so pathetic doing aver- like buy-local advertising campaigns because it completely yeah. ignores... Why does anyone shop at Walmart? All right. It's not because it's yeah. like, yeah, they are maximizing their buying potential, but it's also like it could be the only place they can actually afford, right? You actually right. do get more. I, where I went to college, uh, Walmart was the place to go. Like the, my town was so small, except for the two colleges. It was like, so what do you got up there to do? Um, there's, you can drink, you can watch hockey. Oh, and there's a Walmart. Yeah. Now, the other thing you mentioned you go is to Walmart to the, be entertained. about like, look, the, the reason why people don't shop local is because they're not aware of local businesses. All right. You know, that, yeah. that's why it's like, that's why the 5% discount is an actual like, oh, that actually like cuts down on the, the one of the main reasons why not. Okay. Go on. Sorry. I just wanted to so, point out how stupid by local ca- campaigns really are without economic reform. Well, California is offering technical support to help small businesses adapt to e-commerce. But some municipal governments are looking to go further, promoting the use of a local currency by borrowing, spending, and accepting it themselves. This could be a game-changer for struggling regional economies nationwide. If municipalities were to spend money that could only circulate in their regions, they'd have a powerful tool for stimulating businesses, creating jobs, and generating tax revenue at the local level. And promoting balkanization. Uh, (laughs) You're absolutely right. The idea of getting municipal, or well, the idea would be to have all of the areas surrounding, like the major metro areas from yeah. DC all the way to Boston, of like Baltimore, uh, the Beltway, Bill- yes, yeah, the whole the whole East Coast Beltway, and just have one currency for that Beltway. I think that could do a lot of wonders to stimulate that. Oh yeah, that that we split out from the the rest of the country and stuff like that, right? Oh, definitely. Um, it would also need to include Virginia though, because the D.C. area is it's the there's a local streamer there, uh, Dylan, and he he actually refers to oh, DMV, which is D.C., Maryland, Virginia. You know, there's Northern Virginia is part of the D.C. metro, so got to oh, include yeah. that too. That's true. All right, so the idea of getting municipalities involved which comes from the Schumacher Center for New Economics, the think tank behind Berkshires, is still in its infancy. I would be curious to figure out who funds the Schumacher Center for New Economics. Good good idea. It mentions well, it. There's the, there's the blue yeah. link. I'm, pardon me, I'm going to click it, open it in a new tab. Okay, you you look at that. I'll um continue. I'm not going to go through the whole history thing, but basically Schumacher wrote, 
Small is Beautiful, Economics as If People Matter. This was in 73. It was a New York Times bestseller, very influential book. Really got a lot of, a lot of the community economics stuff I re- read about is inspired. I've read it, though I remember very little from it, actually. <laughs> um, but mostly his arguments that, like, big, if, if a business gets big enough, it basically has to be, be a monopoly. Or the whole purpose of a business growing exponentially is to be a monopoly. There's really no other endpoint. So if, if you want, if you don't like monopoly, if you don't like, um, economic exploitation or oppression or tyranny, really, you need to keep things small. Both governments and businesses or firms, whatever, commerce. And it's right, for, I'm reading, can I, can I jump back? Go I'm ahead. reading the thing. It's, it's, it, it seems to me it's based as, as hell. Like it's, it's great. I love it. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. It's talking about, like I'm reading there now and yeah. it's like democratiz, uh, like adding democracy to, uh, things, giving labor a say. And I'm like, all right, I'm on board. This, uh, it's saying the right things. Oh, sure. No, no, they're, they're leftist. I mean, they're not, um, a, yeah, they're not part of the Soros empire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're, that's what you're thinking. Like, I wonder who funds this. Is it Soros? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let me skip ahead to, it gives us the history of Berkshires and how it came about, mm-hmm. but, and a lot of examples of local businesses now. Um, but even the business owners who love the currency acknowledge its limitations. When Levin and asked his employees if he could pay their bonuses in Berkshires, they declined. Austin says it can be a pain, the pain to deal with issuing change because it doesn't have coinage. Though I don't know why that's a problem. If everything is, unless it's tax based. But that's, so that, that's what brought in my, uh, my thought that I wanted to rant about it. How the only reason dollars are important is because it's the only currency that governments accept as taxation. So later on in this article, it will mention how the real game changing, when it actually shifts from just being some boutique shop local initiative to being post capitalism is when Governments accept these alternative currencies as a form of taxation. Or we have unions or other types of organizations that do everything governments do and that use these alternative, yeah, that do these alternative currencies. Uh, Small is beautiful evolves. A few years after Berkshire's launched, word of their success reached the New Economics Foundation, NEF, in London. In the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, the NAF reached out to the Schumacher Center, curious about whether it might launch a similar, easily exchangeable currency backed by British pounds. Those conversations helped shape two of them. Uh, uh, You cut out. uh, Brixton Pound in South London and the Bristol Pound in Bristol. But you're back. both, Both prospered. 250 businesses now accept the Brixton Pound, and over 5 million pounds worth of Bristol Pounds have circulated. But according to Wit, the currencies are also evolving away from their original models. The Brixton Pound, sold, uh, sold more as a souvenir item, features David Bowie on the tent, and the Bristol Pound has become something more ambitious, the UK's first community currency that can be used to pay local taxes. Switzerland and France have since allowed Bristol's lead, launching local currency sponsored by countries' host cities, such as Lehman Notes in Geneva and Sol Viote in Toulouse. 
these developments got the Schumacher Center wondering about the evolution of local currencies in its own country. In recent times, U.S. alternative currencies have been used by the private sector alone. Could American municipalities start sponsoring, accepting, and making payments with local currencies as their European counterparts do? Can I chirp in? in? Yeah. Uh, so I want to chirp in that also in England, there are government, uh, local municipalities or councils that have sponsored time banks. And in particular, this is where, this is really where things like would really shift, right? Where volunteering, doing community projects, volunteering for like the city gets you a time bank currency that can be used to pay your taxes, right? Where instead of having to work for capitalists, you're working for your local government, right, to pay your taxes at the very least, just for that. But you're doing it not for, like, you know, the aggrandizement. I mean, there's avenues for corruption, I suppose, as long as there's governments uh, with monopoly of violence, let's say. That's, you know, anarchism can come in there. But imagine volunteering, doing snow shoveling. You get labor hours for that, and then that can be spent either for your taxes or at local businesses which occurs in this British town that I learned at the Time Banking Conference. They basically, you do two hours of community service and you get a credit to see a two-hour movie at the local theater. Huh. Um, and it and basically, like, the theater accepts that as, like, a ticket. Interesting. Yes. I just wanted to mention that. Go on. So in COVID-19 pandemic's early days, city officials in New York and New Orleans reached out to the Schumacher Center with that very question. They were less interested in the Berkshires program as we currently run it, and more interested in applying it to solving their own COVID problems, Witt recalls. And so this past April, the center drafted a proposal. It outlined how municipal governments could use currencies like Berkshires to pay local vendors and vice versa. For example, says Rachel Moriarty, the Schumacher Center's director of operations, a, ta- a town could borrow the local equivalent of Berkshires to help finance a construction project and pay workers in the local currency. The workers could also use the currency to pay at least some of their local taxes. Not only are, are these policies perfectly legal as long as the currencies are exchangeable for U.S. dollars, they also have plenty of behavior year old precedent, says Robert Hawker, the law professor at Cornell University and one of the proposal's legal advisors. During the Great Depression, local governments issued an accepted grip, essentially IOU notes to pay taxes to support cash-strapped residents. This is especially important as Wall Street has basically accumulated so much of the money that's, well, printed by the Treasury that we basically, we have control over 2% of all the money. That's we need to have our own money then because they're going to control all of it. We kind of need our own, so we're not controlled by them. Right. Can you so use- as pandemic relief or as a pandemic relief measure, Schumacher's proposal also allows local governments to issue emergency local currency payments to businesses and residents in need. The city of Mauritia, Brazil, has been doing something similar since. 2014, when it launched Mumbuka, a basic income issued in a currency only redeemable at small local businesses. Eduardo Dinitz, 
professor of banking and technology at the Sao Paulo School of Business Administration, calls Mambuca one of the most unique basic income models in the world. If the government were to do this in Brazilian money, they can't avoid people spending it in other cities or losing some of that money to credit card companies, Dint says. But by sending Mauricio's most-in-need residents monthly Mumbuka payments, he explains it lifts up the city's local businesses even as it strikes a blow at poverty. So none of, none of it's going to Walmart. You know, imagine, like, you know, all um, – that's the thing about, like, government subsidies is that, like, whether it be – food stamps or um or other types of like you know welfare it all basically kind of gets sucked up by big corporations at the end of the day until walmart decides it takes all of them uh, every Yo- walmart takes every local currency from everywhere uh, no 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 it, it hmm how could they do that though I mean, local currency is basically designed, it's like legalized into you have to spend it at accepting businesses. I guess. How... But the thing is, local businesses are tied to a local economy, not in Walmart and big corporations are the opposite. The whole point is that they're, they can spread out to everywhere and all markets. And that's neoliberal capitalism. Oh, no. Well, I, hmm. it seems like Walmart would be very weary of actually doing that because these currencies like some of like you could just bring in a piece of paper and like have printed something out in your like house and say yes this is local currency from vermont take it and if they would just take it then fuck it i'm printing money in my house and that's how I'm going to be paying my groceries from Walmart from now on. Well, I think local currencies, that's why I like putting them on cards and having them be digital is a different thing. And there's shopkeepers. I, uh, so just skip down to the last few. Well, let's see. Is the last, is, this, is the last kind of yeah, important? important? Oh yeah. For, for, for wit, Berkshires are about something bigger than logistics. This is about honoring how amazing it is to know your lo- shopkeeper and local producer and all their complexity as citizens in a community. Perhaps nobody believes in that value more than the shopkeepers themselves. In their toughest year yet, on top of a decade that's seen Amazon and big box retail continually chip away at their prospects. Berkshires, business owners, continue to tirelessly fight for that know your shopkeeper way of life. For Austin, that means giving her customers the full, oh yeah, and that goes into their little mini stories, personal stories. But beyond what the currency can do, be it enlarging the customer base or improving the bottom line, the shopkeepers seem most motivated by what the currency can convey, a message best summarized by the thinker who helped inspire it. Small is beautiful. I like it. All right. We are on Twitch, Homegrown Hangout, and 3 Left Show. Um, yeah, come check us out. We're doing stuff. We got Facebook, Three Left Show. That's where, and all in social media, that's Twitter and on Mastodon. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at Three Left Show. You can also email at Three Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership 
to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show of your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts.